Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational program, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. My guest today, Alexandra Bielak, studies an overlooked aspect of the global conversation on conflict, disaster, and humanitarian affairs. That is internal displacement and internally displaced people, or IDPs. Like refugees, IDPs have been forced from their home by conflict or disaster, but unlike refugees, they have not crossed an international border and therefore are not afforded the kind of legal protections embedded in widely adopted international treaties like the Refugee Convention. The thing is, as Alexandra explains, the number of IDPs around the world is actually greater than the number of refugees. Alexandra is director of the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center, and we caught up after her organization released its latest flagship annual report on global trends in internal displacement. We run through the numbers and the key policy challenges and discuss how the international community can do a better job of keeping the priorities of IDPs in the front and center of broader conversations about refugees and migration. And if you want to watch Alexandra and I have this conversation, you can do so at bloggingheads.tv. This is one of the occasional episodes that I was able to video record and post to the bloggingheads.tv platform, which is a, a great platform that you should definitely check out. As always, you can get in touch with me via globaldispatchespodcast.com. Send me an email. I love hearing from you. If you want that Twitter list, that list of people that I follow on Twitter that help me understand the world a little bit better, key journalists and world leaders, send me an email. I'm happy to send you that list. And otherwise, stay tuned for some great episodes coming up. Very excited about what we have in store for the month of June. All right. Now, here is Alexandra Bilak. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. An internally displaced person is a person who's been forced to flee their home as a result of either conflict or generalized violence or a natural hazard related disaster or any kind of human rights violation. So the causes of displacement are quite broad, but the movement is a forced movement. So we're not talking about internal migration, we're talking about forced displacement. Um, uh, a key defining element of internal displacement is the fact that the person uh, who's forced to move does not cross an internationally recognized border and remains within uh, the borders of their own country. Um, what this means is that they don't then benefit from an international protection system as refugees would do, uh, and that they remain under the jurisdiction of their state. And so 
the idea is if you are a refugee, you under international law, under all these agreements, like the refugee convention that almost every country on the planet has signed, are afforded a certain set of protections. What, what are some of those protections that are, say, afforded to, to refugees that perhaps IDPs don't get because they don't have that same kind of status? Well, uh, internal, internally displaced uh, people, because they fall under the jurisdiction of their state, their state they fall under uh, national law, uh, which in many cases and should be as comprehensive as possible, at least uh, on paper. Um, they do. There is such a thing as um, the UN guiding principles on, on internal displacement that are non-binding um, set of norms and regulations that are inspired by international humanitarian law and that many um, countries have uh, uh, adopted uh, and which generally um, reflect some kind of commitment on the part of national governments to provide protection and assistance to IDPs uh, in the same way as they would to refugees. Unfortunately, that's not um, always the case because the, the, the challenge with internal displacement is that in many situations, the governments, um, the governments themselves have been involved in causing the displacement in the first place or don't have the capacity, uh, either the, they don't have the willingness or they don't have the capacity to provide that protection and assistance. So um, the issue with internal displacement is that we are looking at many very vulnerable people um, who aren't afforded um, the protection that they that they deserve and that they need, and and so the the idea is that if they were a refugee, if they just happened to cross a border, they would have these protections. But since they're IDPs, they kind of fall through the cracks. in, in some cases, where say the government is some the one cases. that is say perpetrating violence against them or their community, so they flee their town, their village, their city, but they don't happen to cross international borders, so they don't get that kind of refugee status, and all that kind of comes with it. Exactly. I mean, they're, they're supposed to be protected as, as citizens in their country. Right. Uh, but of course, you know, the majority, and this is what we're showing in the report, uh, that the majority of internal displacement takes place in low or lower income countries um, that are typically, um, you know, that have typically low capacity to cope, weak institutions, fragile states uh, that simply don't have the, 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 the capacity to, to assist them. So, so let's talk numbers. So what did your 2016 report find? How many in people are internally displaced around the world compared to how many like refugees around the world are there? Mm -hmm. Well, so today we are looking at a total number, total cumulative number of over 40 million conflict-related uh, IDPs across the world. Um, unfortunately, we don't have uh, a similar figure for disaster-related um, IDPs. Uh, this is for the for the total cumulative uh, numbers. Now that is um, twice the number of refugees in the world, just those 40 million IDPs. Um, in 2016, we uh, documented 31 million new cases of internal displacement by both conflict and disasters across the world. Now that doesn't mean that they that they are still displaced today. Um, in some cases, particularly in disaster contexts, internal displacement can be resolved relatively quickly, but in many cases it does not get resolved um, quickly. It tends to become protracted. And so we fear that many of these new uh, caseloads will only add to uh, existing and historical, historical caseloads and that the total cumulative numbers will just continue to grow in the future. So, you know, I think probably most people listening, most people watching uh, 
are aware, understand that we are in the midst of this kind of global refugee crisis, seeing levels of displacement unseen since World War II, uh, are the figures that track internal displacement, the figures that you track, um, do they correlate to refugees, like the number of refugees? That is, if you see a spike of refugees, people fleeing borders, do you also expect to see a spike in internal displacement? Well, that's actually a really uh, interesting and fundamental question. That's something that we tried to answer this year with this report. We were trying to understand whether there was typically a point during a displacement crisis where an internal displacement uh, caseload tips into a cross-border uh, movements. Um, you know, if, uh, if if you take, for example, Syria, there there was a point um, during this, the, the six-year civil war, particularly in 2014-15, where people started um, fleeing out of the country, whereas before they had remained mostly displaced within Syria. Um, so, so we were trying to paint a more global picture of that and to try and make sense of those trends. We were trying to understand what proportion of IDPs uh, tend to become uh, refugees and after what point in time. Now, the data available is very scarce and unfortunately we weren't able to to draw any um, conclusive um, trends uh, on, on this issue. But we know that there is a clear correlation uh, between internal displacement and, and, and refugee movements. Some of the countries with the highest numbers of IDPs are also uh, refugee, you know, some of the top refugee producing countries in the world. So clearly... The refugee flows that we've seen recently are a symptom of a failure to protect first at the national level and, and, and a symptom of people after a certain amount of time seeking that protection elsewhere. Can we talk about Syria for a minute? Because, you know, globally, it's, uh, of course, the biggest driver of, of refugees, cross-border refugees. Uh, but one thing in your report that I found interesting, correct me if I'm wrong, but your report found that the number of internally displaced seems to be leveling off a, a bit in Syria. Why Why is that? Um it's, it's, it's true that in 2016, we reported uh, lower numbers of new displacement than we did in, in 2015. Now, it can be due to a number of uh, factors. There were a couple of ceasefires that, of course, could have stabilized some of the, some of the uh, front lines during the year. Also, a certain number of uh, cities under siege where we're looking at literally people trapped uh, in, in, in cities and unable to, to move. Um, and then also um, some changes in, in, in the methodologies of actors on the ground and how they track numbers. So all of these factors combine to, 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 to give rise to changes in the figures from, from year to year. But the, but the decrease in the number of IDPs in, uh, in 2016 by no means reflects uh, an improvement of the, of the situation. So can we maybe do like a little bit of a global tour and you can tell mm. me like the countries, the hotspots and the drivers of internal displacement and, and sort of what maybe later on we can talk about like what policy options are there to deal mm. with, uh, deal with these issues. Yeah. Okay. Well, when it comes to conflict related internal displacement, um, it's true that over the last uh, few years, we've reported consistently high numbers in the Middle East. Uh, 2015, it was, it was Yemen. Uh, with the with the bombing campaign that that led to the displacement of over two million people, uh, of course Syria and Iraq were were also um, uh, highly affected. Now in 2016, we were somewhat taken by surprise by the fact that uh, DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, was the country actually worst affected by new internal displacement uh, during the year. 
Um, and of course, it shouldn't have surprised us really, because uh, internal, I mean, D DRC is a is a protracted crisis. Um, that crisis has never, the conflict has never gone away. The the root causes of that conflict have never been addressed. And just because it had dropped off the agenda um, somewhat over the last couple of years doesn't mean that the that the situation had had improved. So we saw a spike in new displacement in 2016 with close to a million people. Um, close to an, a million new internal displacements in mostly in the provinces in the east. Um, and then in sub-Saharan Africa, across sub-Saharan Africa, the situation um, was relatively dire. We are looking at DRC, of course, Nigeria, South Sudan, um, as, you know, the countries most affected. Um, so that's for... Can, that's I, can for I ask... On, on DRC, um, which, which you said in, in your report says is the country with the most newly displaced people uh, around the world, can you, I guess, describe um, in as close a detail as, as possible, like what, what are the experiences of, like an, of a displaced person in the DRC? I mean, I, I suppose you probably get your data, your figure from the United Nations or from other agents, relief agencies on the ground in places like the, the Kivus, which are the, one of the hotspots in, in DRC, or this new area of conflict in DRC called Kasai province, yeah. uh, which is on the other side of the country. So like yeah. where, like how, how do you, one, get your data and, and mm -hmm. two, what do you know about the individual experiences of people displaced by conflict in DRC? Mm -hmm. um, so first of all, on the, on the data, we, as IDMC, we don't uh, engage in any uh, primary data collection ourselves. Um, we rely entirely on the data that's collected by actors on the ground. In the case of DRC, um, it's a joint collaborative effort between humanitarian agencies like OCHA and uh, the national or provincial level uh, Congolese authorities. Mm -hmm. I should but, say OCHA uh, is an acronym that stands for the Office for sorry, the Coordination yes. of Humanitarian Affairs at the United Nations. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I'm, I'm an acronym, our... acronym ninja, <laughs> to tell you. <laughs> Thanks for clarifying that. <laughs> um, no, actually, OCHA, uh, OCHA is one of our key partners uh, on the ground. So in the case of DRC, the figures come from, uh, from OCHA, and they're updated on a, on a fairly regular basis. Now, when it comes, of course, the figures don't don't tell the full story. When it comes to DRC, um, uh, what OCHA has reported to us on the ground is that it's been actually very difficult to to come up with this figure. Um, to some extent, um, it's it's very difficult to untangle different types of phenomena. So, in 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 DRC, we're looking at repeated uh, cyclical patterns of displacement where. A single person can be repeat can be displaced several times over the course of a month, two months, three months. And having lived in DRC myself for for four years, um, I I know the situation there relatively well, and I witnessed it myself. That people are exposed and vulnerable to multiple shocks in a way that is unprecedented that you hardly ever see uh, in, in any in any other context. Uh, we're looking at people, fam entire families, who have to move. Um, dozens and dozens of time over a, a relatively short uh, period to escape armed attacks um, or to escape, um, you know, other other types of threats. Um, the, so among the, like the people that, you met, I should say that among the people you met hmm. while living in, in, in DRC for four years, I mean, what are some of their stories? Um, like, yeah. is, is there a story you can you can retell about an individual or a family, like where they move to? Like, how do you decide okay. where to yeah. go? I mean, mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of thinking to myself, like, okay, I have family in this state. Maybe I could f try to drive across country to go there. 
But you know, well, like, the, the cho- exa- yes, it's a good question. The the choice that uh, that you're going to make as a family, or as a as a hold, as a household, is going to be determined by a number of things. I think the primary decisive factor is um, you know how much, how many resources you have resources you have at your disposal to actually travel. Uh, in many cases, you're looking at people who travel uh, on foot. Uh, who, who carry as many possessions as they as they can. I'm sure you've seen pictures of Congolese women carrying massive, um, you know, caseloads on their on their backs, on their heads, on their on their necks. Uh, and, and those are often, you know, people moving from one village to the next. Um, now, in some of the most remote uh, areas of North or South Kivu, you don't have IDP camps, you know, set up with all the the infrastructure that would be needed. So you're looking at people who are mostly moving from one village to the next and settling in with with host communities it's actually incredible the amount of solidarity that you see that you witness in those in those times where people just open up their 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 homes to uh, to to incoming um, uh, idps um, so you have relatively small um, homes that are housing uh, dozens of people uh, at, at any one point in time so there's there's a huge amount of solidarity, but there's also a lot of uh, vulnerability uh, that that comes with it. Of course, depending on the the tr- I mean every every individual situation is different, but given given the levels of violence in Eastern Congo, you are looking at people who are who have either been um, physically um, damaged by 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 an attack. Um, you're looking at um, women who become extremely vulnerable to uh, sexual violence in certain cases. Uh, children, of course, who because of the because of the the uprooting um, have no longer uh, you know access to to schooling and who who drop out of uh, of, of their schooling cycles. Um, food insecurity tends not to be the biggest issue in in eastern DRC because it's it's a relatively uh, fertile country and uh, and and people tend to have access to to agricultural options here and there. But in in some of the most severe cases, you are also looking at people who who lack adequate um, mm-hmm. uh, food options and, 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 and nutrition. So, so it, it varies really from, from, from case to case. So earlier you said that, um, you know, while there is no international legal regimen governing, you know, how one treats IDPs or how government should treat IDPs, there is a set of like voluntary principles that, you know, it is encouraged that countries adhere to. When you have a situation like the government of, of the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is both weak and some might say of dubious legitimacy, uh, how much sort of protection is there for IDPs? Like, like what are there any government services or any other services to which they might avail themselves? Well, based on my experience from 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 when I was there, I can say that the protection that uh, that comes, uh, d- d- I mean, doesn't come from the Congolese government, right? So, so um, Congolese citizens are uh, entirely dependent on the assistance that would come from humanitarian agencies on the ground and from the protection that they may get from the the UN mission uh, MONUSCO on the ground. Um, but oftentimes the, the violence that is perpetrated is actually uh, perpetrated by, by national, uh, the national army and uh, local armed groups. So, um, so, so you are facing, in, in the case of DRC, a total sort of political and, and legal vacuum that then gets filled by, like, like I said, international humanitarian agencies, but also local uh, civil society, which in Congo is extremely vibrant and uh, and does provide a lot of uh, hum- services in, in emergency contexts like the ones I've described. 
So kind of continuing our, our tour of the world, um, mm. one sort of fact that I, I knew that I, I think probably might surprise people, people listening to this, uh, conversation is that the country in the world with the largest number of IDPs is Colombia. Uh, and, and your report, uh, you know, obviously, you know, provide some data to, to, to back that up. I'm wondering since there is this peace process underway, uh, that, that has taken hold. We're actually speaking the day that Donald Trump is, is meeting the Nobel Peace Prize winning president of, uh, of, of Colombia, President Santos. Uh, is there a sense that things are, are getting better, that the number of IDPs, uh, I, I guess that, that are, have been created by this, you know, 50 year civil war, uh, are declining, are decreasing? Well, the figure that we report for Colombia is actually a government uh, figure. So those are the official Colombian government statistics for IDPs. Now, this is where uh, methodological issues come into into play. And this is what we at IDMC have to have to deal with on a, on a daily basis. It's true that we often get asked that question, you know, how come Colombia has more IDPs than Syria does? or DRC, or Sudan, or, or, or whatever, um, it, it seems to, it, it jars somewhat. Um, the, the reason why the, case, the Colombian caseload is so big is because the government of Colombia considers all victims of the civil war as uh, IDPs. Um, so, so because of the definition that they, uh, that, that they uh, use, um, that, and, and therefore the, um, the parameters uh, that they've set up for their own reg- registry of IDPs, that is the number that we, that we have today. But of course, um, if you just look at the number, uh, you can't possibly compare the Colombian IDP with the, with the Colombian IDP caseload with the Syrian caseload. We're, lo- we're looking at very different types of contexts and very different sets of vulnerabilities. Yet, all those people do qualify uh, to be called IDPs uh, for for a certain number of reasons, but there are huge differences in severity, of course. That's interesting. So, so, so it's it's a methodological thing, and and the government presumably has certain political reasons to want to keep that number high. Um, probably, and uh, and when you mentioned the peace process, um, uh, we we are hoping that at at some point uh, in time, the 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 IDP registry will start. Uh, taking people off the books. Uh, but in order for that to, to happen, of course, it needs to happen in a responsible way. Uh, and it needs to be based on um, objective uh, evidence that could uh, indicate that these people have indeed uh, reached a full uh, solution to their, to, their, to their situation of IDPs and qualified to, be, to have completely fully reintegrated into, into society. But a certain number of criteria and indicators need to have been um, sort of ticked in order for anyone, whether it's the Colombian government or us as IDMC, to be able to take people off the books. So it can't, it can't just happen overnight. And in fact, if the Colombian government had um, sort of cut the, the caseload in half, you know, as a result of the peace process, we would have also uh, been a little bit dubious about that. So, um, so it needs to be a, a consistent process. So you've created this, this survey, you've studied uh, sort of trends in displacement uh, around the world. How could the international community do a better job of safeguarding protections for internally displaced when, in theory, it's just that, you know, their, their, their government that, that should be the ones providing the protections? 
Yeah, in, indeed. I mean, I, I think a starting point is uh, first to recognize that there are some um, legal frameworks out there that first need to be uh, respected. We, we mentioned the UN guiding principles on internal displacement, and we've just talked about sub-Saharan Africa. Now, sub-Saharan Africa is one is one of the continents, uh, regions in the world that has actually not just um, designed and ratified, but it's actually in the stages of implementing what is known as the Kampala Convention, which is a regional normative framework uh, on internal displacement that is supposed to guarantee protections uh, at the national level for IDPs. Now, of course, even though a number of African states have have ratified this, this convention, they are hitting a stumbling block when it comes to implementation because they typically don't have, you know, the resources or, like I said before, the, the political will for it. Um, at the global level, um, one of the things that we have been um, um, arguing for is at the very minimum a recognition that internal displacement is an integral part of the broader uh, global displacement and migration picture. Um, so when, when the international community um, focuses on refugee, uh, refugees and migrants, they mustn't forget that, uh, that they're often looking at the endpoint of a crisis rather than st- the starting point of it. And that by redirecting attention to countries of origin, uh, they would be at least um, sort of investing in prevention rather than in, um, in only treating the symptoms of, of crises. So that's one of the key arguments that we've, that we've been making. But as you say, ultimately, internal displacement isn't uh, an issue that can be solved through processes of international solidarity necessarily like like refugee issues can be because we're looking at a domestic issue that that requires a domestic response so how do you put pressure on national governments to to actually take their responsibility of course they often invoke sovereignty as a as an obstacle you know to sort of say to 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 outsiders keep out this is our this is our problem but they need to be reminded that with sovereignty also comes responsibility and that it is in their responsibility but also in their interest to um to prevent internal displacement and to and to resolve it one of the key arguments that um that we're trying to make at IDMC is that large caseloads of IDPs on your ter- on your national territory over long periods of time is only going to be a drag on national economies. It's going to be an obstacle to future development and it's going to keep the conditions in place for future uh, displacement and for, and for cyclical crises. So as I was saying, it really is in national government's interest to, to, um, to address this, this issue. Well, perhaps in their like enlightened self-interest because probably pressures at the moment might suggest that they want to displace a population for one reason or, or another. I mean, it, it right. seems, I mean, it, it just sort of seems to me that, that the challenge that you just articulated is, is just so daunting because, you know, as you said, like on the one hand with refugee issues, there is like an international will to want to do something about refugees because people don't want refugees coming into their countries. They, they want to, you know, stop that, that movement of people. But at the same time, there is this, um, you know, bedrock principle of sovereignty that you don't want the international community telling you how to treat people people displaced within your own borders, like how to do what, what, what you, you know, exactly. you ought to do. So it seems like, like politically it's, it's a very difficult kind of argument to make, even though it's like rationally exactly. seems to make sense. Exactly. I know. And, and I completely agree with you. And a lot of the, the human rights uh, arguments that, uh, that we made in the first 10 years of the guiding principles haven't actually worked at all, which is why I think the way forward is to try and make arguments now 
um, you know, economic arguments, security-related uh, arguments. I think it, there are also opportunities internationally with, um, you know, the 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 agenda for sustainable development to sort of integrate internal displacement issues within broader, um, you know, global challenges. You know, it is that there are direct links between internal displacement and underdevelopment, um, climate change, uh, sustainable development uh, uh, as well, state fragility. So, so it, it's it's about sort of demonstrating those linkages and demonstrating that unresolved internal displacement is going to have a number of knock-on effects. Uh, beyond that, as you say, uh, how, you know, uh, how do you put pressure on national governments? I think international diplomacy uh, needs to be stepped up in this case. So, is is there like a, a government you could cite, or that that in which the argument, that economic argument you make, is is resonating? So, I, I would imagine that you have like government like Sudan or, or Syria, you know, that is like committing war crimes on its own people like they couldn't care less about about yeah. those kinds of issues yeah. but there's probably like a set of governments like fragile democracies that want to do well by their people but don't necessarily have the resources or the ability to 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 do so so is there like a a government that you could cite that is trying to do the right thing in difficult circumstances there are a number of governments i think who do who who do recognize um um, the importance of this issue and who don't necessarily shy away from, from talking about it. Um, I recently had a conversation with the, the Afghanistan ambassador here in, in Geneva who was completely acknowledging the issue and saying, you know, it's very difficult for national governments who have a number of competing priorities um, to, to, to prioritize internal displacement when you're having to, as you say, you know, work on a number of other development uh, challenges linked to, you know, health infrastructure, transport or whatever. Where do you start? But I think that there are opportunities with certain governments to at least bring them around the table, share experiences, because there are some, um, some positive experiences, you know, some local solutions that have been found. Um, and, and, you know, and and work with the with the a coalition of the willing, uh, if you will. But it's true that I think there are c- certain certain governments like like Syria. You can't even start having that conversation with uh, at the moment. So, is there anything else about uh, IDPs that that we should know that you should leave us with that we should talk about before before we end this conversation? Like, what what well, didn't we talk about? Well, we actually spoke mostly about conflict-related internal displacement, and uh, and as our report shows, there are also uh, a huge number of people who become displaced every year by disasters across the world. Uh, the countries most affected um, almost every year uh, have been uh, the Philippines, China, and India, um, but also uh, disproportionately some of them, the the, the smaller island states that um, that suffer disproportionately if you take into account the size of their population. Mm-hmm. Um, there too, we are looking at, I mean, there are different contexts, but we are looking at long lasting displacements. Uh, people that aren't able to return to their homes within short periods of time. And, and in countries, um, that are also weak and fragile, like if you take Haiti, the, the earthquake in Haiti, uh, a few years back and Haiti that's been hit again in 2016 by Hurricane Matthew, you are looking at similar patterns of, of shocks and stresses that, that, um, that put massive uh, burden on some of these poorer countries. Um, so I think it's worth uh, it's worth mentioning that as well. We didn't so, talk about. So it's it's the idea that these these natural disasters, like like a, a typhoon sweeps through the Philippines and you know knocks out uh, some cities and and people start to rebuild. Then another typhoon comes. Maybe they don't rebuild in in like a, a, a what the the UN buzzword is resilient way. Mm-hmm. Uh, is is that the idea? Yeah, exactly. I, I, some some countries like the Philippines are actually uh, very good at not just um, you know 
first of all, tracking the number of people displaced uh, in, in the first place, but then responding and ensuring that people can return within a relatively uh, short period of time. But there are other countries, um, especially when you're looking at it, it also varies on the types of hazards that you're looking at when it comes to earthquakes, where, you know, the, where, where typically you're looking at massive destruction, where return is, is not necessarily an, uh, an option ever. Um, you, 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 do, you do have um, caseloads of, of people who remain displaced over long periods of time and who, and who tend to fall between the cracks. Um, so, so again, it varies from, from country to country and from situation to situation, but there, there are a number of uh, contexts in the world that we've highlighted in the report and that are of huge concern to us. Um, and maybe I could just end on um, the most complex uh, situations right now, which are, of course, the, the drought-related um, um, situations in, in the Horn of Africa and in Yemen, where you're looking at a very a lethal combination of environmental degradation, drought, and conflict that is not just you know pushing people to to move, but is but is also uh, making it almost impossible to to respond. So um, so yeah, th those situations are of huge concern to us. They're much more difficult to to monitor and to document, but uh, we're working on it. Uh, well, Alexandra, thank you so much for your time. Where can people find your work? Uh, on our website, Internal Displacement Monitoring Center. Um, everything is on, on the website. So uh, please come and visit it and, uh, and take a look. Uh, our database is also publicly available. So, um, so anyone can interact with the, with the data and feel free to contact us if you have any questions. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. This was helpful. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Alexandra. And please leave a review on iTunes. I really appreciate it. It helps grow the audience in actually a very meaningful way because the more reviews and podcasts gets, the higher it ranks in search results in iTunes where most people listen to podcasts. It's a virtuous cycle. Thank you for, uh, for leaving a review. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.